This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we're talking about condoms and climate. One of the biggest drivers of carbon pollution is the number of consumers on the planet, and demographers say global population could exceed a whopping 10 billion by the end of the century. Hundreds of millions of those people will climb out of poverty into the middle classes of Brazil, China, India, and other countries. That's good news for their quality of life and the economy. But if those people have the same carbon footprint as Americans, the Earth's climate will be thrown into disarray. Over the next hour, we'll talk about growing population and efforts to curb it by educating women, by government fiat, and other measures. We'll also talk about food production and the role of innovation and human ingenuity. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us two guests. Alan Weissman is author of Countdown, Our Last Best Hope for a Future on Earth. And Malcolm Potts is professor of population and family planning at the School of Public Health at UC Berkeley. Please welcome them to Climate One. Uh, I want to welcome you. And before, I want to mention that we invited and actually had Christine Mugridge, Director of Communications and Outreach from the Archdiocese of, of San Francisco, accepted our invitation to participate. And unfortunately, she wasn't able to make it uh, on short notice. So we did have, uh, wasn't intended to have three men up here talking about population. Uh, we, and we look forward to having her and others in, in future population programs. Alan Weissman, let's start with you and say how you came to write this book about the population story. Some people will remember uh, my last book, The World Without Us, got a lot of attention. Uh, And for those of you who don't know it, suffice it to say that I wrote it because I would like a world with us. The gist of that book was it was a thought experiment that theoretically wiped humanity off the planet to show how when relieved the daily pressures that we heap on it, nature could recover in surprisingly beautiful and swift ways and even eventually refill empty niches. And what I was hoping readers would take away from that, once they saw this lovely uh, restored world, was to think, well, isn't there some way that we can add ourselves back into that picture only in harmony and not in constant combat with the rest of nature? And in the epilogue, I just wanted to talk about how we could do that, but I ran into a rather stunning fact, uh, and that is that every four and a half days, we're adding a million people to the planet, which just did not seem like a sustainable figure to me. So at the end of the book, I ended up, surprisingly to myself, uh, doing another little thought experiment in the epilogue. Setting aside all social implications, I asked one of the world's leading demographic institutes, it's in Vienna, to calculate what would happen if we all participated in the Chinese one-child policy. And the surprising answer was that by the end of this century, we would be at 1.6 billion people. 
which was exactly the population of the world in 1900 before our numbers doubled and then doubled again. We quadrupled in a single century. Now, nobody likes the Chinese one-child policy. Not even the Chinese like it very much. But still, I left dangling at the end of that book this question of what is the safe carrying capacity on this planet for one very overgrown species that happens to be our own. And readers turned out to be so interested in that. Wherever I went, they wanted to talk about that in a surprising uh, array of venues, including in discussions with archdioceses and in Mormon Utah, for to give some uh, classic examples of the extremes. And yet it's such a loaded topic. It's one that makes us really uncomfortable. Uh, we don't like the idea of somebody telling us how many kids to have. Like any other organism, we're designed to make copies of ourselves. So there's just something unnatural about the idea of having to limit that. Nevertheless, there's no question that we have become far more numerous than nature ever intended for one species to be in relationship to its environment. And we can talk later about how that came to be. So finally, I decided I had to look at this as a journalist as dispassionately as possible, not being pro or anti-population, quote, control, but just to understand what it's about. And that's how I ended up writing Countdown. Thank you. Um, Malcolm Potts, tell us how you got into the population. You're an MD, so tell us yes. a little bit about how you came to that. My name's Hamilton, being an obstetrician, yes. practicing in England. Uh, before the abortion law was changed, and every night I was on duty, I had to get up and treat a woman who'd had an unsafe abortion. And I just thought this was a very curious and bad way to treat women. And I began at the postnatal visits when I delivered a baby to offer women family planning advice. And often they would say, I would say to them, you know, can I help you? I'm a doctor. And they would say, I was just going to ask you that doctor, which means it was sort of code. I never would have asked you, but thank you for bringing it up. But my consultant, whom I was responsible, said, obstetricians don't do that. And I was young and rebellious, and I thought obstetricians ought to do that. And I wrote the textbook of contraception, and I became very interested, and for the rest of my life, has been committed to giving women choices. And my experience from all over the world is when you respect women and give them choices, they will, as Aaron just said, have relatively few children, and on average, probably about two children or less. And, you know, we're a species that was evolved to have a very late puberty, probably about 18 or 20 years, to have perhaps four to six children in a lifetime, half of whom could die before they could reproduce. And the one certainty in demography is that for 200,000 years, there was not a population explosion. We were roughly in balance with our environment. That's where we were a large animal. We evolved to have a slow growth in our numbers. And as Alan said, that's what we've changed and we've done wonderful things to reduce infant mortality, and we've been blind and stupid and curious about not offering people family planning at the same time. Well, tell us what's on your tie and how that's one of the success stories of addressing family planning. Yeah, I, I can't could, read it. could read it. Um, it says cabbages and condoms, which is anybody been to cabbages and condoms? It's a very successful restaurant in Thailand. Okay, a few yeah, people. we got one, yeah. And it comes out of a article I wrote in the 1970s about a friend, Michai Viravaidya, who was a pioneer in offering family planning in the villages of Thailand. And I wrote an article called Cabbages and Condoms because my, it was a metaphor for saying, 
contraceptives are not a medical thing. They're choices. They should be available like cabbages. They should be where your vegetables are. And we were distributing condoms and packets of pills in the little uh, women, the market women who had little boats in the market. And then when the organization I was involved with got bigger and more successful, they founded a restaurant, and it's now a very successful restaurant in Thailand. It makes a million dollars a year profit, which goes into the dry northeast of Thailand, which still needs to be developed, and an awful lot of the, the, the staff are HIV positive. And it's just a wonderful place, and it sells ties. Alan, I wanted to add something about um, about this program in, in Thailand started with cabbages and condoms. Uh, oftentimes, people say that the idea of bringing the population down to sustainable size is in conflict with the idea of keeping a robust economy because economies' health are usually defined by whether they grow or not. And so how are we going to have, you know, continue to grow economically if we're going to be shrinking our numbers of laborers and numbers of consumers, et cetera? Michai Veravida, who brought Thailand to below replacement rate. Replacement rate is two people having two children, and effectively that's zero population growth, and anything below uh, is population reduction. Michai Veravida was not a family planning uh, professional. He was an economist. He was working in development for Thailand. He started going all around the country uh, to institute development programs. And in every village, when he saw them you know, swarming with children, he realized development is never going to happen in this country with so many people. They're just going to overwhelm our best efforts. And Thailand today not only has that low fertility rate, but it also has probably the best economy in South Asia. Uh, there are several other examples. I talk about them in, con- in countdown. We can talk about them again, where successful family planning programs that were not this coercive Chinese one-child policy were instituted, and generally it was a, an economist who was the visionary that set the thing in motion. Well, one of the other success stories is Iran. I think that's particularly interesting because you, you opened your book with a quote from Ayatollah Khomeini about vasectomy. Uh, uh, so Khomeini, if I said that correctly. So Iran is a very interesting story. Yeah, it's. Um, I spent over two weeks in Iran. Uh, it was the last country that I went to out of 21 countries. And the reason was that in 1979, when the Islamic Revolution took place, uh, within a few months, Iran was attacked by Saddam Hussein. Uh, he attacked because there's an oil-rich province on their border, and he thought that this new Islamic Republic, which is just getting itself organized after centuries of dynastic rule, would be – they would not be able to defend themselves and, of course, ten years later, he invaded Kuwait, trying to do the same kind of thing. Now, back then, Saddam Hussein had the backing of NATO. He had sophisticated weaponry provided by NATO, and he also had, sad to say, the components of nerve gas provided by NATO. And Iran didn't have that kind of support. They didn't have much sophisticated weaponry. All they had was people. So first, the Ayatollah actually did the opposite of what we're going to be talking about. Uh, he asked every fertile female in Iran to do her patriotic duty and get pregnant to help build a 20 million man army 
to fight off the invaders. And for eight years, they held Iraq to a truce. And finally, when that truce was brokered, again, an economist, he was the head of planning and budget for Iran, realized that they were going to have a terrible problem, that within a decade or so, all these kids that were born uh, during that population burst, which was so intense that it probably hit the biological limits for fertile females. It was 4.2% annually. They were going to be needing jobs, and the economy wasn't going to be able to provide them all. And he warned the Ayatollah that we're going to have a nation full of particularly frustrated, angry, underemployed, and unemployed young men, which is a very destabilizing thing for a country. And basically, he's describing today's Pakistan, which is another country I went to. So they decided to institute a family planning program, but they wanted to make it not a coercive one like China's, which was already 10 years old. They wanted a voluntary program. So they did four things. First of all, this is the passing from Ayatollah Khomeini to our current Ayatollah Khamenei. He issued a fatwa saying there's nothing in the Quran that says when wisdom dictates you have the number of children that you can responsibly care for, that you can't use any form of birth control from condoms all the way up to an operation for males or females. Second, they made all of those birth control methods available throughout the country. Uh, There's a devout Muslim OBGYN in my book, a woman who talks about the horseback brigades that they would go on, bringing surgical teams to the most remote villages and later four-wheel drive and even helicopters. The only thing that was obligatory was premarital classes for everybody, either in the mosque or in a health center. And by the way, premarital classes is not a bad idea for anybody. Uh, among other things, they talked about how much does it cost to raise, feed, clothe, educate a child. Well, people had access to contraception and they got that idea fast. But the fourth thing that they did may have been just as important as the other three. And that was they encouraged women to stay in school. At the time, Iran had about one-third literacy among females. But they realized if girls stay in school, women tend to postpone their childbearing until their school age is done. So they're going to have a later first birth. And then they've got something interesting and useful to do with their lives. They could possibly be an economic help to raise their family. But you can't do that if you've got seven kids hanging, to your, hanging onto your apron strings. So... Uh, they tend to have, as Malcolm said, two or fewer. Today, 60% of university students in Iran are female, and Iran brought themselves down to replacement rate, according to some calculations, a year faster than China. Alan Weissman is author of the book Countdown, Our Last Best Hope for a Future on Earth. I'm Greg Dalton. This is Climate One. Uh, Malcolm Potts, if educating girls is so simple and effective, why isn't it done more consistently around the well, world? Well, first of all, we need to understand it's a two-way process. Women that are educated find it easier to jump over the many unnecessary barriers that we often put between the woman and the information and means she needs to control her fertility. But secondly, when fertility declines rapidly, then you're better able to educate your children. So that in Thailand, we went from 6 to 1.8 children in 30 years In the middle of that change, we did a very careful study and we asked families that had two children or had four or more children how much 
money they earned, whether they had straw or tiles on the roof, how big their landholding was. And the children from the smaller families were more likely to go to school and stay in school. And I think this is the primary driver why people in the developing countries want fewer children, because they all know the power of education, and they all know you have a smaller family, your kids are more likely to get educated. It's not rocket science. But if we remove the barriers between family planning, the knowledge and means to do it, then even illiterate people will have fewer children, as we've shown in Bangladesh is the perfect example of that. And so the fact that what's happened in Iran is that more women are now in university, which I think is a great thing. Last time I was in Iran, I drove from Mashhad, which is a religiously conservative city, into Afghanistan, into Herat. In the villages in Iran, they have two children, and they're making progress. You cross this dusty border, which I think my British ancestors drew in the 19th century, and you've got the same religion, the same language, the same culture, and they're having seven children, and they're so poor that the girls don't have any shoes in the snow. No, so we could have done the same in Afghanistan if we'd made things available, and that country would have been profoundly different from the mess it's in at the present moment. And what are some countries where there's troubling population trends? Is it Pakistan? Where are the ones where things are going in, in a troubling direction? Pakistan is clearly a, a disaster. And I, I mean, it's got a very... Again, you know, in 1960, Pakistan was east and west. It was the same country, the same religion. And then East Pakistan became Bangladesh, Bangladesh was poorer and less um, urbanized, but it now has about 2.3 children, which is very near replacement level in a country that still has a high infant mortality. Pakistan just had an incompetent family planning system. It never um, respected people. It never made things universally available. It was very medically uh, conservative. You know, it's very difficult to understand how important medical conservatism is in holding back access to family planning. First of all, family planning is a choice. You don't come to me as a doctor saying, I've got a disease called too many children. You make a choice. If I can tell a story about Michaira We started, the first day that we started taking family planning into the villages of Thailand, it was about four hours drive outside Bangkok. We had about half as many people as there were in this room. We were going to teach them how to sell pills and condoms to their neighbors in a group of villagers. And a telegram came from the Ministry of Health in Bangkok to the local doctor saying, do not cooperate with Dr. Malcolm Potts and Mr. Michai Viravidia because they are breaking the law, distributing pills, oral contraceptives without a prescription. The very nice doctor looked at this telegram and he said, you know, in this part of Thailand, sometimes telegrams take two days to arrive. I think this one will come tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) And within six months, the villagers had been so successful that the Ministry of Health changed the rules and they bought into distributing contraceptives. And you have to sort of, you know, push the envelope and listen to people. Family planning is not telling people what to do, it's listening to what they want. And on prescriptions, is there a reason why prescriptions for birth control pills exist in the United States? Absolutely not. I mean, we should take the pill off prescription tomorrow. This is the only drug. How many people in this room, be honest when I've asked this question, know that if you take oral contraceptives for a few years, you will halve your rate of ovarian and uterine cancer later in life. Yeah, just a handful. handful. That is really stunning. And so, you know, this is an extraordinary safe drug. You can't commit suicide with it, unlike aspirin. Um, you know, if you take too many, you vomit. 
Uh, if baby takes all 28 pills, it's not a good idea, but baby also vomits. So it's an extraordinarily miraculous drug. And the only thing that keeps it on prescription is big farmer's greed. I could make pills available in any place for $8 in, in, in CVS pharmacy. And it should be there. That is what they, there was a study in the United Kingdom, I remember it starting, on 27,000 women using the pill, 27,000 not using it, followed for 39 years. And the women used on the pill actually lived longer than the women who didn't. You know, and there's a lot of biology that isn't time to explain. But it's a very good example of how difficult we make it. You've got to go and to a doctor and be examined of things that aren't related to the pill. Malcolm Potts is a professor of population and family planning at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health. We're talking about condoms and climate at Climate One. Alan Weissman, let's talk about the climate part of this. With growing population, what is, what is the connection between climate and population? What are we looking at? Well, there are a couple connections. Number one, I mean, this is pretty elementary. All of our environmental issues are caused because of what we do to the environment. No other species out there is pushing on the environment in a way that is stressing it out because it's its habitat. We started doing that because, as Malcolm said, for 200,000 years of the history of Homo sapiens, uh, our population stayed pretty much constant because people were dying as fast as they were being born, like happens to any other species. But then we started to repeal some of natural law, starting around 1796 when we uh, defeated smallpox. A vaccine for smallpox was followed by all these other medical advances, other vaccines, pasteurization of milk, and suddenly we had people living longer and many fewer babies dying. And then we got into the 20th century, and then we did something that far more accelerated because we hit 1 billion around 1815, and then a little over 1.5 billion in 1900. But then we did something that changed everything enormously by learning how to pull nitrogen out of the air and chemically slather it on the soil and create much more plant life than nature had ever created before. Uh, that translated into a whole lot more food. Famines didn't occur. The Green Revolution with improved crops that produced much more food per stock added to that. And as famines were avoided, more people survived to beget more people, and suddenly we quadrupled. Now, the two aspects of climate change is, number one, there are many more of us demanding something else that happened right along those same 200 years, and that was our mastery of concentrated energy. Basically, we took a lot of energy that, in the form of carbon that nature didn't need, so it had buried away. We dug up millions of years worth of buried stuff, and we've been burning it for the last 200, 250. And we've jet-propelled society. We can do all these incredible things. We have electricity, but we also have these waste products, and they float up into the atmosphere, and the more of us demanding this stuff, the more carbon dioxide is up there. There's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere right now than there has been in three million years. And the last time there was this much in the atmosphere, the seas were 80 to 100 feet higher than they are today.
that also occurred 15 million years ago, same sea levels. This is what we are doing. Second, as those temperatures go up, they are going to affect the amount of food that we can control. Just as our population rose with our food growing capacity, the rising temperature as a result of all that carbon dioxide, this is no secret to anyone in this room, is starting to play havoc with the weather and we all know that we are headed to probably beyond a two degree centigrade average temperature by the middle of this century. Now, agricultural literature is filled with studies and a lot of them are cited in my bibliography and countdown, that show that for every one degree centigrade, crop yields are going to go down about 10%. And we're already headed beyond two degrees. And in that same time, by the middle of the century, we're scheduled to add about two and a half billion more people. Folks, this doesn't compute. There have been previous scares about population, starting with Paul Ehrlich and the population bomb, concerns about, about growing population, overshooting the, the Earth's capacity. Technology came along and, and solved the day. And so what, what do you say to people who say, well, some, whether it's GMO crops or some new technologies or growing corn in Canada, that we will adapt and we will feed the number of people that are coming along? Look, I, I was in Iowa last night talking about this. And... Iowa claims, uh, as a native son, Norman Borlaug, who was the head of the Green Revolution, uh, who is credited with saving more human lives than any single person on Earth because he staved off the certain famines that were about to occur in India and Pakistan, which is the first place the Green Revolution was tried out. But as a result... You know, India is about to surpass China during the coming decade as the most populous nation on earth. And Pakistan, you heard a little bit about it before. Here's the numbers. Close to 200 million Pakistanis right now in a country the size of Texas, which has 26 million. And by the middle of the century, it will have nearly 400 million. That's way more than the population of the United States right now. And it'll still be the size of Texas. And they can't employ these you know, these young men that they have, and it's a breeding ground for terrorism, and it happens to be a nuclear power. I mean, the place is out of control. Now, in both of those countries, you know, I met people who implemented the Green Revolution, and they repeated me. And I also went to the Green Revolution centers where they designed this technology, and they all pointed out that Norman Borlaug himself, when he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize, didn't gloat about solving hunger in the world. He said that we have postponed a problem that we can only solve if we couple it with population control. And he spent the rest of his life on the board of population groups because he knew that the more food we produced, that would drive population upward. And so now we've got a chaotic situation in Pakistan and in India the wells for the Green Revolution, which originally were about 50 feet deep to grow all these new jet-propelled crops, then dropped 100 feet, and then by the time they hit 250 and 500, a lot of Green Revolution farmers there could not afford to keep drilling deeper and deeper and deeper. And you know, I spent a day while I was researching this book just interviewing widows of farmers who have committed suicide. Since 1995, 270 
1,000 green revolution farmers in India have committed suicide, and they do it symbolically by drinking pesticide. This is not saving the world at this point. It's too much of a good thing. Alan Weissman's author of the book Countdown. We're talking about carbon and climate at Climate One. Uh, Malcolm Potts, is technology going to save us? I'll tell you a place where it's not going to save us. Uh, we're very focused on the Sahel at the present moment. Sahel is the Arabic word for shore, and that's that area below the Sahara Desert that is dry and dusty and goes from the Atlantic to the Red Sea. In 1950, there were 30 million people. Today, there's 125 million people. And in 2050, which isn't all that far away, there'll be 325 million people. And at that time, and we've had some studies done by the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab up the hill above our campus, the temperature won't rise by two degrees. It will probably by, you know, four or six degrees because this is already a very hot place. The rainfall may go up a little bit, but it'll be so hot the water will evaporate before it can go to the roots of the plants. And so you'll have more people than live in the United States of America watching their crops wither and their cattle die. And those people will either die or migrate or they'll be involved in conflict and literally kill one another. And I think all three things will happen. I think the infant mortality will go up again and we will see many of the triumphs of the past 50 years in international health rolled back by these catastrophic situations. I think there'll be huge migration. The third largest town in Kenya, after Nairobi and Mombasa, is a refugee camp. And those are refugees from Somalia and Ethiopia. And that's going to be multiplied many, many times. And so I was looking at a report yesterday by the UN that says by 2050, there'll be 300 million ecological refugees in this world. Now, many countries can take and welcome a small number of migrants, but if you suddenly double the population with different people, with a different religion, with a different language, that's just not going to work. This is a, a, a recipe for disaster. Now, again, there are solutions which begin with offering family planning. There are things you can do to adapt agriculture, at least to mitigate some of the harm. And in where we're looking in the Sahel, then girls' education becomes critically important because this is, many of these areas are polygamous and there's a lot of girl marriage. And unless you can raise the, the age of marriage of those girls, if you can put up the age of marriage by five years, you cut the birth rate by 25% without even a contraceptive. And we're having a fantastic success with, with Nigerian colleagues. One of them was with us yesterday. Um, keeping girls in a series of very conservative villages where only 4% of girls ever went to secondary school and not one of them completed that education. Now 70 or 80% are staying there in secondary school. And it's costing about $100 a year per girl. Now it'll cost billions of dollars to bring all the girls in that area to give them some opportunities and raise the age of marriage and get rid of this human rights abuse of child marriage. But we have to make that investment because if we don't, the cost of inaction will be very, very much greater. Some people say that the, it's a foregone conclusion that world population will get to 9 or 10 billion. There's actually a range from 6 to 16 billion. So let's talk about how high it's going to go and whether that's inevitable or those curves can be bent. Well, uh, some additional population growth is inevitable because uh, take China. China now has fewer than two children on average. 
But the population of China still goes up by about 7 million more births than deaths each year because of what we call demographic momentum. The women that were born a generation ago are now having children. So in parts of Africa, in the unlikely event that everybody had two children, the population will still go on growing. On the other hand, the UN Population Division projects population to the end of this century. And their projection for 2100, when I hope my grandchildren will still be alive and your grandchildren, um, is about 9 or 10 billion people. But if on average you have half a child more, there will be 15.8 billion people, which would be totally unsustainable. If you on average have half a child less, there will be 6.2 billion, which might be a tolerable world that you could sustain. And, but those decisions are not made you know, after 2050. Those are decisions we have to make now. We have to make family planning universally available, and we have to make the investment that's needed in these countries that have child marriage and where there's really no educational opportunities for girls. And those are things that we must uh, do, and doing that will be a very, very tiny fraction of, of the cost of not doing it. But this is not a conversation that a lot of people like to have. I'm a little bit embarrassed to say I've been doing Climate One for six, seven years. Now this is the first program of focused directly, totally on population. I've asked many environmentalists and energy people, what about population? They say that's not our issue. We don't like to talk about it. It's a nasty political, social issue. So why don't we like to talk about population, Ellen Weissman, when it's such a big lever for solving the problem? Well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it's doing what comes naturally, and it just seems unnatural to do something else. And also, of course, there are you know, religious pressures. Every nation, tribe, etc., starts out with a mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And the reason for that, of course, is that you want to be bigger and stronger than the competitive nation or competitive tribe next door. You know, the Israelites in the Bible were polygamous for the same reason that the Mormons were later on, to fill up that land and to outcompete the Canaanites. Uh, though it was very interesting when I was in Israel researching Countdown, a Talmudic scholar pointed out to me that after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with their multi- multiple wives and offspring and all those begets, then you get to Joseph. He's one of Jacob's 13 children. And, and who might be the first ecologist in recorded history that we have because he was very observant and he realized that we were going to be entering a time of scarcity. Well, first, he has just one wife and only two children, and he counsels the pharaoh of Egypt and the Israelites that in order to save themselves, there's not this is not a time to expand. This is a time, so to speak, to reframe from embracing so much. It's a time to conserve because it's a time of of scarcity and urgency. And frankly, we're in a situation like that again. And one of the most interesting parts of uh, getting to research a topic that, frankly, I knew nothing about, and those people like Malcolm uh, who helped educate me, uh, you know, was to talk to so many of the world's religions and to realize that there are things in their liturgies and their histories that would accommodate that sort of behavior. If necessary, you don't have to change people's minds, say you're wrong. You have to show them that there are examples in their history where they have done exactly the right thing. Malcolm Potts, why is there sort of awkward reluctance to talk about population? The beginning point for me is that we're a very unusual animal. 
if we were cats or rabbits, it'd be easy to solve this problem because they only have sex when the female's ovulating. We have an enormous number of sexual intercourses over a lifetime. And most people in this room could have conceived 10 or 12 children just because that's something that human beings do because we use sex both to express love and we use sex to conceive children. And the curious thing about it which separates us from, shall we say, chimpanzees, is that we're very shy about it. We do it in private. We do it in dark after we don't have sex in the middle of this room. If we were, if we were a group of chimpanzees, there'd be probably somebody having sex out there, and they'd be absolutely shocked by the fact we were sharing food. So animals do uh, differ. But, you know, the good news about famine planning is it's something that's wanted. It is the most cost-effective way of reducing our carbon footprint. It's more cost-effective than making solar panels or windmills, there's a wonderful program in California called Family Pact, and it provides subsidized, basically, family planning and reproductive health care for people at 200% of the poverty level. And those people don't want to have a lot of children, and a very good analysis of that program has shown that it averts about 100,000 unintended pregnancies every year. Now, those 100, it's difficult to get your mind around an unintended pregnancy, or half a child, it's sort of like Monty Python. But if those babies had been born and they'd lived to be 80 years, their carbon footprint would have been enormous, even if they're relatively poor. Meech, I used to blow up condoms in front of a big crowd of people. And then everybody laughs. And the important thing is the person next to you is laughing. And National Condom Week always has a competition for what is the best condom couplet. And the one I remember is this. Use a condom and you will learn no deposit, no return. Now, the important thing is that the person next to you laughed. Not that you laughed, but the person next to you is the same. The person next to you has exactly the same opinions about sex being a wonderful, beautiful, and loving thing, and not to be shy and stupid about it. So if we bring a bit of humor into this, I think we'll, we'll help everybody make, make comfortable. Mm-hmm. Can, can I respond? Yeah. You know, as I mentioned before, for 200,000 years, our population growth rate was like this, and then it went like this. I mean, it's really that hockey stick. And everybody here in this room, we were born here. And it looks normal to us because this is what we know, crowds. But we are part of the most abnormal population explosion in the history of biology. I mean, there's never been anything like like that. But because we think it's normal, that's one of the reasons why it's so hard for people to grasp that there's something wrong because it just looks like what we're used to. I also wanted to put a different figure on what Malcolm just said when he said that this is affordable. Carbon-free energy, we don't know how to do that really well yet, and even if we did, it would be really expensive. This is not expensive. This doesn't involve any technological leaps. To make contraception universally available, it's been calculated that it would cost about a little over $8 billion per year. And going back to, to, to subsidize family planning here in California, probably a lot of you are taxpayers, and some of your taxpayers' money is going into this family pack program. For every dollar spent, within about five years, there's $3 saved. Because, again, unintended pregnancies, premature babies, all the costs of that. I mean, family planning is not a cost, it's an investment. It's an investment in every country on this planet. 
We're talking about condoms and climate at Climate One. Our guests are Alan Weissman, author of Countdown, Our Last Best Hope for a Future on Earth, and Malcolm Potts, professor of population and family planning at UC Berkeley. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Um, You talked about educating women, young girls, as being a solution to the problem. However, say you get very successful along that lines of educating women, um, won't that make for more educated populations uh, in different countries, wouldn't they want to then have more of an American lifestyle, hence a larger carbon footprint? What what are the trade-offs on that? Alan Weissman, if we educated girls want iPads. Well, it's definitely a problem that we are going to have to contend with. You know, a lot of people ask me, well, isn't the problem really consumption? It's not population, and it's obviously both. It's consumption, and it's the number of people who are doing the consuming. But you know, to quote Paul Ehrlich, uh, there just isn't a condom for consumption yet. Yeah. Believe me, if I knew how to solve consumption, I would have written a book about that. Uh, but we are all addicted to that concentrated energy that I mentioned before. Imagine living your life without electricity. And we don't even have to wait for those girls to get educated to start being demanders of electricity. More and more people are moving to cities now. And that's actually helping bring fertility rates down because kids are an economic asset out on the farm. Uh, You know, they do all sorts of farm chores. Uh, In the city, kids cost money. They're not providers so much. But even in the poorest cities that I went to, wherever I went, poor people are finding a way to get cell phones, even kids. And the electricity may be pirated, but they're plugging in those chargers every night, just like you and me. And that's sending more carbon dioxide up up the chimney. There's even a quote in the book about, I think there's a person in Uganda saying, I wish we could market condoms the way we market cell phones. They'd be as popular. Let's have our next question at Climate One. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about how many people the earth can continually support and let those people live in a careful fashion given the fluctuations of food production from El Nino and La Nina and so forth north and south of the equator. What's the sustainable population that comfortably for the earth? Alan Weissman? Yeah, I attack that in a couple of different ways. Or I got a few different scientists who have looked at it from different ways to uh, respond to that. One of them in terms of you know, food production, our food supply is now chemically force-fed, and it is having severe negative repercussions. Besides the incredible amount of greenhouse gases that are involved in nitrogen fertilizer and the fact that uh, just the meat industry and the repercussions of eating meat and animal flatulence and you add all that up together, and it turns out that just meat production is probably responsible for 51% of all greenhouse gases. I mean, it's extraordinary, but this comes from the World Bank. It doesn't come from some wild-eyed vegan, I assure you. We're looking at a situation where this chemistry is starting to backfire on us, and you know a lot about it here in California because rising rates of breast cancer, autism, all this stuff is starting to be tied to some of the protectors of these laboratory 
bred plants that are the basis of our food supply now and all the antibiotics that are being fed to animals. And I could go on here. Before we had commercial levels of artificial nitrogen, there were 2 billion people on this planet. 40% of us would not be here without artificial nitrogen. So if we do a healthy thing for our planet by gradually phase it out over the next couple of generations as we gradually are bringing our population down so people don't start starving, we're going to have fewer dead zones the size of New Jersey at the mouths of the world's great rivers. We're going to have soils that are starting to recover. So many soils have been sterilized by this stuff. And we're going to come back to a sustainable level. Another calculation for the number of people that the Earth could safely sustain has to do with how much carbon per year could be ejected into the atmosphere without really destabilizing both the climate and the chemistry of the seas. And that number, which was calculated here at UC Berkeley by a team of physicists led by John Holdren, who's now President Obama's science and technology advisor, and in keeping with your question, figuring out what would give pretty much an average amount of energy to everybody on the planet so they could have a chance at a lifestyle that most people would feel acceptable, say a European lifestyle, less consumptive than us, but certainly higher than an Africans or South Asians. And again, it came down to about $1.5 billion to $2 billion. Now, that was, again, the population of the world in 1900. And... We had a pretty robust world back then. We had great inventions coming up. The Wright brothers came up with airplanes. Somebody in a debate said to me, but yeah, but if we control population, you know, that next kid, that could be the next Mozart. And I said, well, you know, when the last Mozart was born, there were less than a half a billion people on the planet. And somehow we had a critical mass of intellectual activity. We're talking about population and climate at Climate One. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Uh, great discussion. Thank you. My name is Marion Swain. I work at the Breakthrough Institute over in Oakland. Um, so you're talking about empowering girls and, and educating girls and, and women, um, which is great. But then your rhetoric kind of shifts. And when you talk about booming populations in Pakistan or India, you start to talk about people as if they're like a scourge or a pest, um, which I find somewhat troubling uh, as, a, as a type of rhetoric. So I think what we're actually seeing in the developing world is countries – with rising populations, but also that are developing and getting wealthier. And as they get wealthier, then the population growth does start to slow. And we do see uh, birth rates start to converge towards replacement rates. Um, so I'm, and I think most of the mainstream projections are seeing population stabilization by the end of the century. So I was hoping you could react to that. Malcolm Potts. There is a very widespread idea that we don't have to do anything and the population will stabilize. What I think Alan and I are saying is that we have a huge opportunity to accelerate the slowing of human population by making choices available to women. Now, the first question was a very good one. Um, I think there are levels of human poverty that I've seen that I wouldn't wish any other human being to be in. If you look at measures of GDP, people want to get richer and richer. If you look at measures of happiness, poor people are not happy. They get to a certain level, and then our happiness is pretty much horizontal. And I think we've got to get away from all these silly GDP measures. We cannot bring the whole world to America's standard of living, whatever that is. That is just physically impossible. There aren't the resources. We run out of copper and things like that. 
And those are realities that we have to live with. But we have an opportunity to slow rapid population growth in the human rights framework, and that's one we should welcome. Let's have our next audience question at Climate One. Welcome. As a youth, um, I would hope to see this population growth change, and I hope to be alive to see it. In your ideal like reasoning, what sort of time frame do you see for this, and what sort of consequences do you see if there aren't enough younger people to support older people who may be um, more in need of support? Well, first of all, there are a lot of people that are worried about declining populations in Europe and Russia. Every year, a science-based industry makes more stuff with fewer people. We make more large SUVs with robots than we used to make with more people. So, And there's unemployment in Europe. There's unemployment in, in America. I think it's crazy to be worried about a slowly falling population. I think it's something that we should welcome. Let's have our next question for Alan Weissman and Malcolm Potts at Climate One. My thought is, you know, I'm from the generation where uh, progress is our most important product. And I remember in your book that you said that in order to get our economies level, that we needed to have a stable state economy. And I was wondering if you could comment on exactly what a stable state economy, because obviously I grew up where the, uh, the free enterprise, but it seems like if we're controlling people, in a stable state economy that uh, I'm going to have to give up some of my freedom. So I was wondering if you could comment on that. I mean, your freedom doesn't have to go anywhere. Uh, I tackled the economic question by going to Japan, which is one of the first countries on Earth that is really dealing with a shrinking population. The reason being that in 1949, Japan had to cut off its baby boom because it lost World War II. Now, some of you may recall that it entered World War II, or it started World War II, because it had a population problem. And it wanted to expand into Manchuria to bleed off surplus numbers. But then, of course, things got out of hand. They kept going, and then they lost. When their soldiers came back, they started to rejoin their wives, just like our soldiers did, and their population rose by 10 million, and suddenly everybody was starving to death because their economy was wrecked. So in 1949, in an emergency measure, they legalized abortion. Remember, this was before birth control pills, because Japanese women who were pregnant were literally throwing themselves in front of trains because they didn't want to watch another baby die of hunger. So today, there is a much smaller generation that's about to take the place of that last large generation that was born before World War II. And their population is already dropping. By the middle of the century, it's going to be approaching its 1950 population again. And many Japanese economists are terrified by that because they say, you know, we're not going to be able to keep growing economically. But I met an economist named Akihiko Matsutani, who's part of a major policy uh, think tank in Japan, who sees this as an opportunity. He sees what's going to happen, and it's already starting to happen, that instead of everybody living in these crowded port cities where they can import raw materials and create, you know, through their heavy industry, stuff for exportation, younger people are already starting to move into the hinterlands away from these cities because as there are fewer people living, their land is cheaper, housing is cheaper, and he says light industries are going to follow them. 
uh, because there's going to be fewer, so they're going to be more valuable. Wages are not going to drop. In fact, he said per capita GDP, if that's not a paradox, uh, is not going to drop. The country's GDP may because its economy is going to be shrinking, but people are going to earn pretty much the same only as demand drops when there are fewer people demanding and fewer people putting carbon dioxide up into the atmosphere, I would add. They're going to simply cut working hours, so people are going to have more leisure time. And the definition of prosperity is going to be more about quality of life than quantity of stuff. Now, this is not a bad vision of the future. And, of course, it's going to take some tweaking, but he says the way it's going to happen as population drops gradually as it does, we're going to have a generation or two, a few decades, to to make this transition towards steady state being that we're not trying to grow and always demand more resources on a planet that does not grow and does not have an unlimited number of them. Let's go to the next question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. Um, quick question, Dr. Potts. Um, let us suppose that we do get all of these things that are on both of your wish lists, that we have ample education for women everywhere and that we have ample access to contraceptives. Uh, what then would you estimate would be, in the aggregate globally, the rate of reproduction uh, for everyone? And if that is more than uh, what would be needed to get down to the 1.5 billion or so that you, Mr. Weisman, see as being the sustainable number, uh, what solution would you then propose um, and is that, you know, consistent yeah. with um, yeah. the principles? Well, I think it's a good question. Mentioned. I think it's a fairly good answers. So I think by the end of this century, if we invest in family planning now, we can probably have 6 billion people and with a population that will be continuing to decline. So sometime in the 22nd century, we would probably get to the 1 or 2 billion, which I think would be biologically sustainable and I think would be a wonderful and beautiful world. The, the, the really dangerous time is between 2050 and 2100, and what we do now will determine what that population looks like. We're going to take uh, two more questions from these young questioners. Yes, welcome to Climate One. Hi, um, my name is Nina Harpel. I'm a student at Foothill. I just had like a really quick question about if this affects um, population growth at all. Um, so if healthcare is like decreasing the mortality rate, um, how do we deal with our current uh, population control if lives are being prolonged? Alan Weissman? Um, give just one example. Bill and Melinda Gates uh, have been very concerned about malaria and HIV, and they have devoted a lot of funding to try to eradicate them in the world. And, of course, we all want that to happen. If you've ever seen the ravages of either, you pray that they will succeed. But in recent years, the Gateses have come to understand that solving one problem is going to exacerbate another on a stressed and stretched planet. So they have now become some of, I mean, their foundation among private foundations is number one in trying to fund family planning because just as Norman Borlaug realized with food production, if we solve one problem that's going to increase the number of surviving human beings, we're going to have to couple that with family planning in order to keep you know, a steady balance. Look, imagine a national park. Every one of us knows 
it just makes total logical sense that you have to keep the number of predators and prey in some kind of balance. Otherwise, you know, this, the ecosystem can just get completely out of whack and even collapse. But when the species is ourselves, it's a little harder to you know, imagine. And yet, this is exactly what we have to do. Let's have our last question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. I'm Rebecca Thompson. I'm from the San Francisco Waldorf High School. And the question I have for you is with the growing population obviously affecting the climate, we're having some really weird weather. So what kind of physical effects and changes to the U.S. climate can we see after this current polar vortex? Alan Weissman, you've traveled a lot and seen a lot of climate impacts. Boy, um, you know, I said that I went to 21 countries and in 21 of them, people told me that the weather had changed. And, uh, you know, when, when Malcolm was talking a couple minutes ago about poor people and how they are impacted by climate change, I was, was thinking about a country that both of us spent time in, Niger, uh, a Sahel nation. And when I went there, uh, every village after village, people would say to me the same thing. they say, if you had been here 25 years ago, you couldn't have seen that house over there, it was about 100 meters off because of all the trees we used to have. And I said, what happened to the trees? Well, you know, we cut them because, you know, our, more of us need them for firewood. And now trees aren't growing back because we used to have this 10-year drought cycle, and then it became a five-year drought cycle, and then it became a three-year drought cycle, and now we're in the fourth year of the three-year drought cycle. And it's just impacting everybody right now, wherever we are. And here in the United States, what we're probably looking at, the models are racing to catch up, but it looks like the ice pack in the Arctic was kind of the anchor for the jet streams. And now, as that ice pack is diminishing, the jet stream has kind of started to wander and drop down into the mid-latitudes, and hence we are having... I live in New England, and I was just in Iowa. I mean, we're having sub-zero weather much longer than we used to have in the winter time. And meanwhile, we're sucking the moisture out of the West, as you well know here in California. And up there in the pole, uh, ask anybody in Alaska, they're having an unusually warm winter up there, and they're having avalanches that are burying highways. We're in uncharted territory now, and... I think that we can ride this thing out, but not if we keep putting carbon dioxide up there. And this is one of the best ways that I know to start diminishing our use of fossil fuels is by diminishing the number of users. We have to end it there. Our thanks to Alan Weissman, the author of Countdown, Our Last Best Hope for a Future on Earth, and Malcolm Potts, Professor of Population and Family Planning at the School of Public Health at UC Berkeley. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for listening to Climate One today. Thank you. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chen. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd, and editor is Annie Chelsea. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. Thank you.